titled the message, Victory in Jesus. We have two points for the message, two main points, and that is one point per slide, so two slides, so that you can be aware. I decided to go with slides because the second point is a little bit more wordy, and it helps to have them um, written, or at least I think it is wordy. I don't, don't remember what exactly is on the screen, but... Um, Let us consider, number one, our victory is assured. Our victory is assured because Jesus is alive and will come again to claim his own. Our victory is assured because Jesus is alive and will come again to claim his own. We're going to consider now the first seven verses of this section. Point number two, we'll just consider the last verse of this section, but these verses are driving at a point. They're making an argument. So let's consider now verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Our victory is assured because Jesus is alive and will come again to claim his own. We have first under this an exclusive invitation. An exclusive invitation. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. Jesus said that except a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The issue that we all face, and most of us have already faced it and have already dealt with it and addressed it, but the issue that we all face is this problem that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In case you haven't noticed, you have corruption. All people have corruption. All people have or are flesh and blood. You are a soul, you have a body, your body is corrupt, your soul is corrupt. Every aspect of your humanity is impacted by sin. This is a problem. Except a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You need to be changed. You need a transformation to take place. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You in your own self, you by your nature, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But an invitation is offered and has been offered. And it is described in these verses. Not only is it necessary to be born again, Except a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But if I was going to make up my own scripture, which I don't recommend, I could, say, I could say this. Except a man be given a resurrected body, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's what this verse is driving at. Verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You need a new body. That's what we talked about last week. And that's what we're talking about in part today. Your corrupt body, your sinful body, your fallen sinful body that has many problems cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So an invitation is extended. 
And that invitation is for a transformation. Verse 51 describes point B. A certain transformation. If point one, sub point one, is an exclusive invitation, point two is a certain transformation. This certain transformation is what I have considered victory in Jesus. So we have first this problem, the problem of your sinfulness in your nature, your fallen, sinful, corrupted body that cannot inherit incorruption, so you need a transformation. Verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So there is a mystery being described here, and that mystery is this fact that all of the Lord's people will be transformed. They all will receive a new body. They all will be changed. But they're not all going to die. Almost everyone will die except for those believers who are alive at the second coming of Christ. Those ones are not going to die. They will receive their resurrected body without having died first. Lucky them. Providential them. Blessings for them. They are not having to go through the valley of the shadow of death. But whether you are alive at the second coming of Christ or whether you die this afternoon and the Lord doesn't return for another 50 or 500 or 5,000 years, there is still certainty that you will be changed. Your body shall be changed. If you are in Christ, you will receive a new body. So this is a mystery revealed. And then our second sub-sub-point is a trumpet blast. So a mystery revealed is the first sub-sub-point under point B. And then the second one is the trumpet blast, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. What does this trumpet mean? Well, we could get into like kind of crazy stuff that's a little bit confusing and debatable, but let's not do that because my preference is not to do that. But here's what we know with the trumpet blast. You're not going to miss it. You won't miss it. You're going to hear it. We don't always hear everything that's said. Yesterday, here's my baseball illustration for the sermon, and then we'll take a nice long break because the season is over, effective yesterday. I won't say we intentionally lost, but we lost. So we're done. I'm glad we're done. But I had to catch. So I'm behind the plate catching. We only had like eight players, and um, you're supposed to have nine for you who don't know baseball. We were supposed to have three outfielders, but we only had two outfielders. And so one of our guys who normally plays first base was playing right field. And... Um, I'm catching, so I'm normally like in the dugout coaching, but here I am on the field catching, and I'm like, Pat, move in. You're too deep. Because we're playing on this huge field, and he's playing way too deep in right field. Nobody has power to right field unless they're a lefty. And I'm yelling at him, Pat, move in. Pat, move in. Like, I even take my helmet off so I can yell at him because, like, your helmet is muffling your voice. And he had to have heard me. I don't know. I'll have to talk to Alexis about this later. Was I, was I not loud enough? I don't know. But I was yelling as loud as I possibly could. But you know what he would have heard? A trumpet blast. <laughs> he would have been like, well, wait, what? What was that sound? 
I'm not saying he wasn't paying attention, but he would have paid attention if he heard a trumpet blast. There's something about a trumpet. It has this piercing tone to it that cuts through all the noise. It cuts through all the chaos. If somebody walked into this church service, hopefully none of you have trumpets with you, but if somebody walked into a church service like this and pulls out a trumpet and starts playing it, suddenly everybody's attention is going to turn away from whatever else is happening to the fact that somebody's playing a trumpet right now. This is the reason why not that many churches even have or use trumpets in their musical uh, accompaniment because it kind of dominates and sort of takes over. And it's very difficult to have it be um, fitting in with the rest. So there will be this trumpet blast, which means you're not going to miss it. It will be so loud and so piercing that it cuts through all the noise and all the chaos and all the distractions. You will hear And that will remind you. You will be reminded. And when you see these dead being raised, you'll be like, oh, that's what that is. That trumpet. Next, a change assured. Verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. You can't get in unless you have put on the garments. You can't get in unless you have experienced this transformation. You have a physical body right now, but you need a spiritual eternal body. You need a resurrection body and you will. You will receive that. And this change is necessary. Verse 53 says this mortal must put on immortality. It's not an option. Think with me what this would be like if it wasn't taking place. You have problems with your body. I have problems with my body. Our bodies get worse. They decay. They slow down. Your knees start to hurt. Your eyesight starts to fade. In some very real sense, death can be a blessing. Because if you had to live forever with an eternally decaying body, that would not be good. If you went to heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth, where you're going to live for forever, and you had a decaying body, the natural body, it's just aging and aging and aging and getting worse and worse and worse for forever, but you can't die because you have eternal life, this heaven doesn't sound that great to me. Like that back pain that you have that gets a little worse every year. You have to have a transformation, a a transformed body. You have to have a resurrected body in order to make it in heaven. In order to keep up with all the stuff that's going to be going on for eternity. It is necessary. This change is necessary. It is assured. Let's move then to verse 54. Verse 54, a conquest promised. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. The language of this verse is that of a promise. It's not a, oh, it's not a wish. It's not optimism. It's not hopeful thinking. It's not saying, oh, I sure hope that this works out. No, it is a certainty. It is a promise. This promise of conquest is certain. Death is swallowed up in victory. One commentary very vividly described it by imagining a lion swallowing a mouse. That lion swallows the mouse, and the mouse is gone. That mouse is swallowed up in the lion. So death is swallowed up in victory. The next subpoint, point subpoint five, a battle cry sung, verse 55 through 57. Oh, death. Let's back up one line. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your Bible probably has verse 55 in the previous line, uh, perhaps in italics, perhaps set in a little bit as a, as, as a unique section. It's not just in this continued format of um, the rest of the line. What it's indicating by that change in formatting is that this is uh, a poem or a song. When we look up the cross-references or the, the footnotes that are indicated by those little tiny numbers or letters that are next to this, what we see is that Paul is actually quoting two different Old Testament passages that are not in the same book, and he is smashing them together or combining them together. We got Isaiah 25.8 and Hosea 13.14, and he's putting them together in one uh, continuous thought. Well, what is that? That's a song. That's what songwriters do. That's what poets do. They take connected thoughts from different sources or different things, and then they put them together in a thematic way to make the point. So what Paul is doing here, he's actually seemingly either writing or referencing an early hymn or a line from a hymn or a line from a song that they would have sung that is from these passages of Scripture. They sang Bible songs. They sang songs that had their source in Scripture, even though they weren't exclusive psalmody. So you can give this to your exclusive psalmody friends who'd be like, your church is compromised because you're singing songs written by men. Say, so, no, well, we sing songs that are biblically based. Even if not every song is an exact quotation of scripture. This is what the Lord's people have always done. Yes, they sang psalms, but they also sang hymns and spiritual songs. So what Paul is doing right here is he, he is referencing or, or alluding to a battle cry, a battle cry of victory in the face of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, oh, Hades, where is your victory? 
Where is death's sting? Where is the grave's victory? Well, death's sting is sin. Sin's strength is the law. What does this mean? Well, let's pause and first consider death's sting. Death's sting is sin. All right, let's do a show of hands. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Don't feel bad if this doesn't apply to you, but I want you to participate. Raise your hand if you have never been to a funeral. All right, so let's do the opposite. Raise your hand if you have been to a funeral. All right, good, good. I'm, I'm glad that our numbers have evened out here. Most of you have been to a funeral. We'll leave it at that. And I was thinking of adding two more layers to it, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. A funeral for a Christian is sad, but it's not that sad. There's optimism to it. There's hope to it. It's a time of celebration of life. It's a time of giving thanks to God for the gift of this person that you had in your life. And rejoicing in the the, not only the blessing that they were, but the good thing that they have received now, which is their eternal life. And, and while we may be sitting in a room sorrowful, crying, there might even be a coffin in the front of the room and the lid might be open and you can see that that's grandma or grandpa there and they're a believer. And you walk up, at least tradition and culture I'm from, we, we do that. We have a coffin and the coffin is open and everybody in the building will at some point walk up and, I don't know, take a look, pay, pay the last respects. I don't know. They're not like talking to the person because we as Christians recognize that the person's not there anymore and they're dead and stuff. But nevertheless, you take kind of one last farewell, as it were. And then the preacher will say something like, hey, don't feel bad for him or her. Right now, they're feeling better than they've ever felt. But sadly, it's not true for the funerals of unbelievers. I think uh, at Omar's small group, we were talking about this the other day, and, and how sad it is to be at a funeral for an unbeliever. This was the thing I was thinking about asking for a show of hands, but I don't really want to deal that, do that, but to ask if you'd been at a funeral of a, of a non-Christian and the experience of that and how, how different it is and how sad it is. When you know this person didn't believe in Jesus, and sure, the preacher might say something trying to be optimistic about it, like, oh, well, they heard the gospel and we don't know what was happening in their mind in the last moments of their life. And, and sure, that's, that's true. But we do know that they, they never professed faith in Christ in this, in this lifetime. They lived their entire life for the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have not a shred of reason to believe that they are in heaven. So, death's sting is sin. That funeral for your believing relative, loved one, yeah, death has 
a sting to it, but it's not nearly as bad when it's a, a believer. But this sting of death being sin, sin's strength being the law, continue to think with me about this funeral illustration. The law multiplies the horrible impact of sin and its necessary consequence, death. This is the reason why the death of a lost sinner is such a dreadful thing to ponder. If you actually think about it, it's not just death's sting being sin, but it's actually seriously, literally contemplating the multiplying effect of the law in exposing their sinfulness and extending or demonstrating their guilt. I want to say exaggerated, but it's not exaggerated guilt. It's, it's, it's um, seen. The, the guilt is seen even more. It's exposed. Their exposed guilt is made visible by the law. And so when you are thinking honestly about that person and you recognize well, this person did not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This person did not worship only God, but rather they worshiped lots of false gods. This person had all sorts of idols in their life. They did not honor him. They did not worship him. They did not uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They did not honor their mother and father. They dishonored their mother and father. They, they, their heart was full of hatred. They were very... Um, sexually promiscuous and immoral person. They lied, they cheated, they stole, they coveted. This person was actually not good. And sure, they could have been fun to be around sometimes, or they weren't as mean when they were drunk. You know, you can put a positive spin on some of these things, but when you are thinking about this lost person in light of their sin and the law, which exposes the, the multiplying guilt that they have, it's, it's a horrible thought. It is a dreadful thought. So verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. This is a problem. This is bad news. But that's not the end. That's not the way this verse or this section ends. It says, but, verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a way of victory. There is a way to come out the other side. The way of victory is Jesus but he doesn't just say Jesus. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the man, the real person, not a myth, not the subject of historical fables or fairy tales or legends or mythology, but the real person, Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, lived all in that 
area that today we call Israel. He traveled around performing all types of miracles, teachings. Jesus of Nazareth, a real person, the man. But he's not just that. He is also the Lord. He is our sovereign God. We have this doctrine we call the hypostatic union. It is that Jesus is truly man and truly God. He is real flesh, but he is also real divinity. Both. He had to be a man to represent men, but he had to be God to stand before God. So if he's going to represent you in your, your, your court case, representing you for your sin... But for the Father, he not only has to be human to represent you, but he has to be divine to stand in the presence of God and not be annihilated and not be destroyed by that glory and holiness of God. But he's not just Jesus our Lord. He is also the Christ. The Christ is not some sort of last name. It is not some sort of Nickname, but rather it is his title. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. By the way, he's the only Christ, the only Messiah, the only anointed one. We're not looking for another. If anybody says we are looking for another, they're lying, they're deceiving, they're probably in some sort of cult or a false religion that is saying, no, it's not Jesus, it's someone else or something else. Jesus is our Christ. Jesus is our Messiah. In other words, Jesus is our mighty champion. Jesus is the prophesied victorious Messiah who is going to come and right all of the wrongs that have ever been committed and save his people from their sins. So this way of victory is Jesus Christ, our Lord. But it's not just Jesus Christ, the Lord. It is our Lord. The sentence structure in my Bible, which is New King James, that says, through the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a personal Savior. He's not just out there, far removed, like some politician, or some distant person, some person you read about in a book, but He is our Savior, our Lord, our Messiah. And so I would ask you, what about you? Can you claim him as your own? Can you claim him as your Lord, your Messiah, your Savior? That's what he came for. Not to just be someone else's Savior, but to save you. Have you been reconciled to him? We've already discussed the the sting of death, the curse of sin, the strength of sin. We've discussed this, and you already knew about it, too, because you have a conscience, and your conscience convicts you, your conscience exposes you, and it tells you that things are actually not okay in your natural state, your natural condition. And so you need something to fix that. You need something to save you or someone to save you. And that's where our Savior steps in. And this offer is extended to you today to claim him as your own. And he actually uses this sort of thing, what we would call preaching, to call people 
out of their spiritual graves to life. And they hear it. And at some point, it clicks with them. At some point, the light turns on. At some point, the person says, aha, he's my savior. I believe in him. And then you claim him as your own. The reason you claim him as your own is because he first claimed you. He laid hold of you. And so then you respond to that in faith and repentance. Believing in Jesus as not only the Savior, but your Savior. This is all point number one. Our victory is assured because Jesus is alive and will come again to claim his own. Our victory is assured because Jesus is alive and will come again to claim his own. This brings us to point number two. Point number two says, devote your life to the work of the Lord. There's words before that, but we put that there. So if you're writing it down, you'll want to write that as like the second half of the sentence. So the first half of the sentence in my notes is, even in the face of difficulties, distractions, divisions, and disputes, and I'm sorry for all the Ds, even in the face of Difficulties, distractions, divisions, disputes. Devote your life to the work of the Lord. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What's going on? Where are we? What's happening in our text? Well, this is 1 Corinthians what we call chapter 15. Paul wrote this letter to these people called the Corinthians about 2,000 years ago, and these people had problems. And these problems are the problems I used all the D words to reference. Difficulties. They've got problems in their church. They've also got distractions in their church. And they have divisions in their church. There are warring factions within the church in Corinth There's disputes, there's disagreements, there's lawsuits within the church. There's all kinds of problems. And Paul is saying, the author is saying, on the basis of this resurrection, the confidence that we have that Jesus is our only way of victory, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why would he even need to say this in the first place? Well, the reason you need to say this is because there's all these problems. The problems that we've spent the first 15 chapters reading about, learning about. When you're dealing with problems, it's hard to move forward. It's hard to keep the work going. When you've got drama, it's hard to focus on what needs to be focused on. I lied about the one baseball illustration. We'll have a second baseball illustration right now. I had to pull a player out of the game yesterday in the middle of the game. He was not paying attention. He was not doing his job. He was playing second base, and he was just standing there watching the game as if it was like on TV or something. He just like stand there. There's like stuff happening. He's just standing there. And it cost us... It was two different plays in a row. We yelled at him after the first one and said, cover the base, cover second base. And he's just standing there. 
like 10 feet away from the base, 15 feet away from the base. The shortstop feels the ball, is ready to throw it to him at second base, and he's just standing there like nowhere near the base, watching this stuff happen like it's television. And we're like, dude, get your head in the game. Think, pay attention, wake up. And then not five minutes later, it happens again. And the same outcome. Just standing there watching, this, watching these guys play baseball in front of him. But he's supposed to be participating. So he's, he's not paying attention. So then I'm like, why am I even telling this story right now? He comes off the field, and I speak to one of the guys in the, in the, on the bench, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to replace you, or replace him with you. Like, you're going to go out in the field, and he's coming off. And so I made the change. I wrote it on the marker board, and I let the guy know. Like, hey, Sydney's taking your place. And um, he said, why? He gave me an attitude. Why, why is he taking my place? I'm like, because you're asleep. <laughs> and I said that. I said that out loud. And he starts yelling back at me. Also, he was yelling at me from the field, yelling at like, what do you want me to do? I'm like, I want you to pay attention. And then he didn't pay attention. He did it again. So then I tell him, like, hey, Sydney's taking your place, but you're staying in the lineup. You're just switching from a, just a, a hitter, a designated hitter, to being a second baseman and flip-flopping like that. He was not happy about it. So what happens? He's yelling at me, and I'm not, like, everybody, all of the good people in my life are telling me I need to be more assertive and stand up for myself and not just be bullied by the insanity of, of New York City. And so I'm saying, no, you're coming off the field. So what's happening? Well, we're having a conflict. We're having a conflict in men's league. And I'm telling him, no, you, you, you're not taking the field. You know what was also happening? The game was continuing. We had batters going up to bat while I'm dealing with this distraction, this conflict. And even that caused problems because we weren't able to focus on what we we're supposed to be focusing on because we had this stupid drama off to the side. So, back to the Bible, back to the Corinthians, they've got their own division, they've got their own drama, they've got their own disputes and problems, and when you're dealing with these problems, you're completely distracted. You're completely distracted from the purpose for your church even existing in the first place. On the baseball field, we're completely distracted from trying to score runs and win ball games because we've got this guy who's not paying attention and he doesn't like correction and he won't take instruction. And then he views himself as the victim, as the Darvo thing, for those of you who know, um, deny, accuse, reverse role of a victim and offender. So now he's the, he's the, I'm the bad guy and he's the victim because I took him off the field. But... Verse 58 refocuses our attention. After 15 chapters of Paul dealing with problems, dealing with nonsense, dealing with drama and conflict, he says, be steadfast. Be immovable. Get your focus back. Get your head back in the game. Think about what you're supposed to be doing. And what is that? Well, it's always abounding in the work of the Lord. knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So he's calling us to devote our lives to the work of the Lord. The work that you do for the Lord is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in the work of the Lord. Now, this raises a question, what is the work of the Lord? 
Well, there's a very simple way to read it, a very simple way to think about it, and that is the work of the Lord is the Lord's work. His work. It's, he's possessive. He owns it. It's like, I don't know, Alan's company. It's like, that's his thing. So there's the work of the Lord. But I think there's more to it. Let's ask it a different way. Not just what is the work of the Lord. Let me ask you, what is the work of Christ? The work of Christ is his life, death, and resurrection for sinners. So how do we labor for Christ? How do we participate in the work of the Lord or the work of Christ? How do we labor for Christ? Well, we serve the Lord in union with Christ. There is a way to try to serve Christ that is separated from the work of Christ. There's a way, there's a way to do that. And it's not great. It's not good. So I'll give a few examples. Don't feel targeted, but I, only, I gave five examples, and I tried to range them from across the spectrum from very mundane to very not mundane, but I just went with five instead of 100. So think about the work of the Lord or good things that you can do for Christ. Prayer, abortion ministry, evangelism, changing diapers, and answering emails. So we have a range. So there is a way to try to serve Christ that is separated from the work of Christ. Think with me about praying without Christ. Praying while separating that prayer from the work of Christ. This is the type of prayer that prays as if it all depends on you. Guilt compels you to pray. Why are you praying right now? Oh, because if I don't pray, then this whole thing's going to fall apart. It's all riding on me. Perhaps it's fear. Fear that you won't get the things that you want if you don't pray enough. And so that is what's compelling you to pray. Or perhaps it is fear that God won't hear your prayers unless you pray for a certain number of minutes or hours or hours per week. You know you have this problem when you have like a little timer and then your timer goes from 19 minutes and 55 seconds to 20 minutes and then it goes ding, ding, ding. And then you stop like, all right, did my, did my time. Where it's, a, it's about checking a box or uh, fulfilling some obligation. Second, abortion ministry outside of Christ. How, Andy, you really mean that you could try to be like saving babies from being murdered with, without the strength of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, that can be done. People do it all the time. Motivation, well, anger. These people are so evil. I can't believe they would do this. I'm going to get out there because the world is going to hell in a handbasket and this is just so wrong, so I'm going to go out there. It's upheld by guilt and fear. If I don't do this, I must not be a real Christian. 
that type of thought process, it means that the idea is that serving in this area of ministry makes you right with God. Or not serving in this area of ministry makes you not right with God. Next, evangelism separated from the work of Christ. Surely that could never be, right? Surely that's impossible. There's no way we could, we could evangelize with this wall of separation between us and, and Christ? Well, no, it, it happens. It happens, and here's one of the ways that it can happen. For example... And if any of you have done this, I'm not thinking about you right now. You're not the people in mind. <laughs> Proclaiming the, de- the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and telling people to repent of their sin. What this looks like practically would be saying, you're a really bad person and you need to stop sinning or else you'll go to hell. You need to bear good fruit or else you'll die and go to hell. This is the, it's evangelism without the evangel. This is just law. There is no good news. Next, changing diapers. And changing diapers is just a stand-in for like ordinary housework. Doing your housework or ordinary chores without even a thought of God, without even a thought of the grace that Christ has given to you. Performing these basic tasks with spite or resentment towards your spouse or your roommate. Oh, my roommate makes me so angry when he leaves his shoes not straight. Like the shoe, they're just like crooked. They're not, they're not, they're supposed to be lined up. Can't believe you would do that. Next, answering emails. This represents work. Working at your job as though Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Carrying yourself with such a woeful and miserable mood and face that your coworkers would never guess that you've been bought with the blood of Jesus and that your sins have washed away and that you have the promise of the resurrection and the eternal life. That's, that's the way you can work for Jesus without Jesus. By just carrying yourself in such a way that you don't even, no one would ever think that you met Jesus. These are some simple examples of ways to conduct yourself for Christ while maintaining a level of distance away from the work of Christ. But let's contrast this, contrast this with ways to remember our union with Christ in these, this handful of examples. Prayer, number one, praying. Remembering that it's not because of your eloquent words or the length of your time in prayer or the volume of your voice It's not because you're really loud or really emotional or really tearful. It's not because of your sacrifice. Hey, God, by the way, I'm skipping dinner right now to pray. I hope you notice that. None of these things. But that God hears your prayers on behalf of Christ, who is the perfect high priest, who alone has made acceptable sacrifice, and has therefore opened up the way of this access to God's throne of mercy. And because of all of this, God actually calls you into his presence with his arms wide open. He is already ready to hear you and to receive you, and he actually desires to answer your requests. How different that is from the first approach. Oh, fine. I gotta pray. My alarm just went off. It just dinged on my calendar. It's time to pray. I gotta pray. 
Because if I don't pray, my accountability buddy will say, how was your prayer life this week? And I'll be like, oh, I didn't pray, so, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> these, are, these are worlds apart. Secondly, serving in abortion ministry. You, you, you could do this by remembering that the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts. And you're just his mouthpiece. He's the one who does the work. And so you remember, you're just the messenger. You're the waiter who delivers the meal. You're the waiter who brings the food. You're not the chef. You're the mailman who just delivers the mail. You don't write the mail. So if they have a problem with what you're saying, or if they reject what you're saying, it's, it's not you. And it's not your fault. And it's not the pressure, the pressure's not on you. But you know that the Holy Spirit is the author of the message that you're tasked with delivering. And you know that the Holy Spirit is the one who has the power and gives the power, supplies the power regularly to cause it to take effect. Next, evangelizing. You can do this by remembering that the law is not the gospel and the gospel is not the law. They both have their proper place and purpose. You must remember that the good news is that Jesus has accomplished the full redemption of all of his people. Jesus has truly paid it all, and the Holy Spirit will effectively use the proclaimed gospel to draw all that the Father has chosen for salvation to faith in the Son. So when we evangelize, we are in effect going to the store to pick up an order that has already been placed in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. So when we arrive at the market, we can say to the person at the counter, I'm here for Jesus. And those who are God's people will lift up their heads. Oh, yeah. I'm here for Jesus. Next, changing diapers. Remember, remembering that that delight that we feel towards our precious children is the way that God feels towards us in Christ. And the way we look on our children and are pleased with them as they take a nap. For those of you who have, are not parents or never been parents or don't have younger siblings, you might, let me just describe it to you. So let's say you have a baby and your baby's asleep and you want to go check on them. Or maybe you have a baby monitor and it's got a little app on your phone and you pull it up and you look at it and you're like, aw, he's asleep. He's so cute. He's so precious. Or maybe you just go in there to his room and you just look at him and what happens when well, you smile? Why? Because it's your child. But he's asleep. He's not even doing anything remarkable. Or maybe that is remarkable that he is asleep. <laughs> but he's not, like, doing anything. He's just there. But he's your child. And so you love him. And it fills you with delight. So God smiles at us. Sorry, let me back up. I skipped a couple. Um, so the way we look on our children and are pleased with them as they take a nap or walk down the hallway. Like, I'm sure you will be shocked to hear this, but sometimes I just take pictures of my kid when he's walking down the hallway. Why? Because I like it. I think, he's, I think he's cute. I think it's cool. And then I might send those pictures to relatives of mine. Like, hey, mom, check this out. He's walking. So too, God smiles at us as we're doing the ordinary things in life. Not because we're so skilled in our doing, 
but because we're his children. So when we empty the dishwasher or do the laundry or vacuum the floor, as an act of love and worship for our Father, he is pleased with us in a similar way that you are hopefully, you should be, pleased with your child as they attempt to even honor you with such basic acts of service or gestures of kindness like drawing you a picture. Mommy, mommy, I made this for you. Or writing a card. There's some very dear children in India that I visited a couple, two months ago, I guess. And they heard, I showed them that they wanted to, it's all like, oh, do you have children? Do you have family? So I'm like, yeah, here's my kid. So I show them a picture of baby Andrew. I'm like, how old is he? And I say, well, he's about to be one. Well, when's his birthday? And then you tell them their birthday, tell them his birthday. And then next thing you know, like an hour later, these kids are coming out to me, literally gave me handwritten birthday cards. These kids are like three years old, four years old, and they made birthday cards for baby Andrew and told me I had to bring them to him. So I carry these birthday cards from India back to America, and, and they wrote them in English. Like these kids are Indian, but they, they're fluent and bilingual. And their parents were delighted in that. I'm not sure the parents put them up to it either. I think this was a thing that the kids were like, oh, I'm going to do this. The Father is pleased with you in such simple things. And next, answering emails. Remember that your value to God is not rooted in high-power positions or glamorous opportunities, but that your plodding in the daily grind brings honor to Christ because God loves you in Christ. And you will never be more loved by God than you are already in Christ. So you serve others from a place of rest rather than from a place of rest of striving. So, back to our verse, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Even in the face of difficulties, distractions, divisions, or disputes, devote your life to the work of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we would be steadfast, be immovable, that we would not be blown around like a ship tossed in a storm, that we would keep Christ and his work always before us, and that when there are many legitimate trials, difficulties, and distractions, and problems, even problems that are ongoing, things that are unresolved, that even in those those moments, or times, or seasons, that we would not allow even those things to turn us away from the work of the Lord. Thank you that it is truly the Lord's work. And so the pressure is not riding on our shoulders. But yet we are invited in to participate in what he is doing and what he has planned and what he will accomplish. But I thank you that we 
do truly have victory in Jesus. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.